You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to be joined by Father Richard Murphy, retired rector of St. Bede's Episcopal Church, where he served for 14 years, and who is presently serving as assisting preach at the Church of Holy Faith here in Santa Fe. And during the New Mexico legislative session, uh, Father Richard also serves as state senate chaplain. Father Richard, welcome. Thank you, Neil. It's great to be here. So you've been a member of clergy for over 30 years now. So let's start by asking, what is it that made you want to be a faith leader in the first place? I can't believe it's 30 years. It just seems like a blink of the eye. You know, when I was six in the first grade in New Haven, Connecticut, I can remember running around the schoolyard at St. Peter's Catholic School with a towel on my back imitating the priests and celebrating what I thought was a mass at a little table for the kids. And I think um, I go back to that day, those times, and think that that's when the seed began. Um, what called me was simply, I strongly believe, was, was God's urging. I'm, I'm doing now what God wants me to do. And um, I've always felt that way. So 30 years on, is it the same call? Do you hear it? Is it the same reason that keeps you as a member of clergy? It's, a, it's not only the same reason. I feel as energetic and as exhilarated today as I did 30 years ago when I was ordained. Um, it, it's, to me, it's simple. Keep it simple. It's that this is what God wants me to do, and this is what I'm most comfortable in doing. I, I wouldn't want to do anything else. Before priesthood, I was a probation officer for 14 years in Massachusetts, and I enjoyed that career immensely. And uh, as I look back on it, that was just simply another form of ministry uh, from a different point of view. But... Um, being ordained and being a priest for almost 30 years now um, hasn't changed a bit from my first time. So you, you talk about God's call, hearing, hearing mm. God's urgency. How does one hear God's call, or how do you, at least, let, let's ask, how do you hear God? Because for a lot of people, they can't hear God. Or, so, so how do you hear God? I think I think you hit the nail on the head when you said urgency. I, I, I felt from the earliest times that this is where I should be. And when I look back at it, and I started from a very human level, that as I think of my own personal uh, peace of mind and happiness, that that's a sense of God's voice in me. I, you know, I'd love to hear the call from heaven and the trumpets blasting and all that don't happen. But uh, when I feel that this is right and this is just, I think that's hearing God with, within a very deep level. In our society, in our world, a lot of people claim they hear God doing what they believe is just, but which a lot of other people would believe is profoundly unjust. So how, how do you know the authentic voice of God from the voice of God that just affirms that which you already believe. Yeah, and I think there's people out there that use that expression, God called me and God spoke to me, as, as an excuse um, to do some pretty extreme theology and some pretty extreme action. I think in my case, being rooted in the scriptures and in the liturgy, especially uh, hearing things in scripture and reading such things in scripture as in our Christian uh, te- uh, Bible, uh, hearing... Um, 
the Sermon on the Mount, here in Matthew 25, of serving the poor, serving the least. Uh, these were things that resonated with me. I started in 1965 working on the streets in New Haven, Connecticut, in a Roman Catholic parish as a Roman Catholic seminarian. And um, when I saw people's pain through discrimination and suffering, I heard the voice of Christ on, on the cross. I mean, if you want to see Jesus crying, this is where you meet those tears. And you've been involved in social justice for so long, and many of the great social justice movements in the past had deeply religious roots. So because you've been involved in social justice and human rights work for 50 years, essentially, what, tell us a bit more about that connection between faith and social justice. What does it mean to, to see those tears that you've just described? It means trying to be someone who's a reconciler. I've been thinking about it a lot this week and being a builder in what Augustine used to, what Augustine called God's garden, which is this earth. I happen to look on the earth as, as, as the kingdom that God inaugurates uh, and that you and I live in it. Um, and when I see, going back to those scripture passages, when I came across those and met folks on the streets, uh, it made sense that the only way for me to look at Scripture, to look through, um, to look through the eyes of faith, is to look on through the context of, of human rights and social justice. Probably my greatest influence in Episcopal Seminary uh, when I was in New York City was liberation theology and actually going down to Nicaragua and, and studying it in that context and seeing its involvement with the, uh, the, with the then revolution. And it just made perfect sense to me. It just, um, it's like breathing air. This is one flows from the other. For, for those who don't know, how would you describe liberation theology in a, in a nutshell? Liberation theology in a nutshell is simply uh, listening to the voices of the people, listening to the people at the bottom and hearing their – sometimes their interpretation of scripture, but also um, – give you an example. Paulo Freire, who was a great Brazilian educator, uh, talked about the conscientious of people – the conscientious – forget the word. It's raising the consciousness of people and becoming subjects of their own history. And um, just to – the best way I can explain it is I'm Irish, so I tell stories. Being at a uh, what was called a, a base community uh, in Nicaragua, which were those there was 300,000 of them throughout Central America in the 80s, which were really Bible study groups that became very politicized and joined the revolution. And this one I happened to be in one afternoon in Managua, it was mostly a women's or uh, women's uh, base community. And the speaker through the translator said that when I asked her how it formed, she says, "Well, 20 years ago, she said my priest came to me and said that he was no longer going to." read me the Bible. I was going to read it to, I had to read it myself. I grew up in that context as a Catholic and knew that, um, remember those days when you weren't allowed to have a Bible in the house, only the priest would preach it. So this wonderful woman, her eyes just glistened, excuse me, and she said, well, I read it for once, and um, I discovered who Jesus Christ was. Then I read it a second time, and she said, I discovered who I was as a woman and and threw my abusive husband out of the house. And then she Mm. stopped, and she smiled, and she said, then I read it a third time and became a Sandinista and joined the revolution. And uh, in my own tradition as as a— Anglican Episcopal priest, Henry VIII, didn't want the Bible translated into English because he was afraid of what it would do. Um, And these were people who lived in abject poverty, and Mm -hmm. and it raised them up to see their own worth and to see their value in changing society. 
one of the critiques uh, that some people have of organized religion is, is that it's used to oppress. It's used to control people. Um, and so it's very interesting for, to hear about liberation theology because that's specifically the opposite, uh, as the name implies. It specifically says this isn't a, a religion to endorse uh, right, those in right, power. This is right. the opposite. This is a religion in order to attend to the poor and the needy and to hear the cry of right. the other. And to hear the voice of the, the poor and the needy rather than artic- – the power comes from trying to articulate a voice for them rather than saying to those people, you, you have the right to speak and you have a place at the table for the conversation and to change your situation. That's the beauty, of I think, of liberation theology. It came from the bottom on up. In most faith traditions, there are positive, inspiring texts, and there are also troublesome, problematic texts. And liberal clergy, such as you and I, tend to select positive, inspiring texts as sources for our liberal social justice work. What do we do, what do you do, with the more troubling texts in our tradition that do urge us to be more parochial, more violent, more patronizing, more oppressive uh, what what do you do when confronted with texts? First like thing I like to do is quote Walter Brueggemann, who said, "Those are the naughty parts of Scripture," and tell folks you've got you've got to figure that out for yourself. I think we have to look at those parts and realize that so much of the call to violence um, came from an, a, a, a specific historical location. That uh, the essence of what um, Jesus' ministry was, what God's calling to us, is is, is is based on love. And when we see those um, texts of violence, um, we've got to realize that there are many ways to understand it and to, um, to deal with it. Uh, I have trouble in Hebrew scriptures with the conquest. Mm-hmm. When I see people, and I say, no, wait a minute, if God loves all these people, why smash all the Hittites? Uh, and I have to deal with that. Um, and then I have to, especially for as a Christian with, with John's gospel, there's so many places in there that <clears throat> can easily appear and, and more than likely are anti-Semitic. Mm. And to try and understand that it came in John's gospel from a community that separated from the temple and both sides um, uh, created a violent situation, but to try and understand those. Uh, the hardest one, which was finally explained to me by a group called the Interfaith Amigos, in Jesus um, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which obviously we, I try and avoid at uh, Interfaith Dialogues. <laughs> one, of, one of the members of that says, well, no, that's the God of Sinai. That's not Jesus. That's the I am speaking. And I thought, ah, that makes a lot of sense, and maybe I can begin to wrestle with it and, and to begin to understand it in new, new ways. So, I mean, to be open to it, but to realize that we're dealing with texts that are really grounded in love. And to counter that, we've got to go to a deeper understanding and a more and say that there's reasons for those historically. So then does that mean that when you approach Scripture, you're not approaching it as every word is divinely narrated? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's we take a... Uh, as I tell people, when you're ordained as an Episcopal priest, you sign a, a statement which says that you believe uh, Scripture to be the Word of God and to contain all things necessary for salvation, mm. which you, if you don't sign it, you're not ordained. And as I say to people, it doesn't say the very Word of God. It, <laughs> so it, it's got that loophole in there that we can do the interpreting. <laughs> Did you play the system there just a <laughs> yeah, bit? Right, exactly. <laughs> but, but then, but then I mean, this is a really important <laughs> theological statement, isn't it? To be able to say this reflects humanity more than it reflects divinity, mm-hmm. 
But then how do we decide? Can we open up the Bible, for example, and just take a marker and say, you know what? No, I don't like that. That's not God. Who's to say? Because when it was written down, they absolutely profoundly felt that this is what God wanted of them. So who are we to say what is and what isn't human or divine? I think that's the big test. And that's, that's what calls us to discernment, uh, that what we're doing is we're reading, yes, scriptures that were inspired by God in, um, in, in certain ways, but they were interpreted through human channels. Um, I always like to um, explain the uh, Gospel of Luke, I believe it is, where if you read that Jesus and his ministry really elevates women to a place where in society they weren't at that time. But when the evangelists or whoever wrote these Gospels sat down and they said to themselves, wait, that was okay for him to say. He's gone. We've got to stay here. And so we've got to tone it down. We've got to make it acceptable to Rome and to Jerusalem as well. And they may have watered down a few things. And I think it's a human tendency. I mean, that brings in a very strong political element. Just before we take a, a break, let me ask quickly, doesn't that question anything scriptural in the sense that it could be um, edited deliberately for our own means, in, in this case, for oppression? I think that's the challenge, that if we've come to those texts through faith, that uh, if we're living an authentic faith, that authentic faith is going to call us uh, to understand those. Um, uh, a simple, silly example, perhaps this morning I was driving down to the roundhouse and in front of me was a truck, and the label on the truck was that they were contractors for sub-level um, and I said, that's a theological expression. We as theologians are called to go be t underneath the text. We're, we're to dig deeply. And I said, wow, I saw a theological sign on the way to church, on the way to the state house this morning. So I think uh, if anyone comes to those texts in faith, they've got to be authentic and just not pass over them simply, but just examine them. So let, let's take a pause there for a moment. And when we return, let's ask you about being a state, uh, the Senate state chaplain. And what does that mean for mm. you in the context okay. of interfaith yeah, work? Be glad to. So you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. My guest this evening, Father Richard Murphy, and we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. And my guest this evening, Father Richard Murphy, um, who, amongst other things, you're the Senate State Chaplain. Um, so you get to work with a lot of differing faith leaders at the Roundhouse. So what do you think should be the role of religion in a political setting? Well, that's a great question. I think religion in a political setting, religion at the Roundhouse, uh, at its base level has to hopefully inspire people, elected representatives, um, to begin looking at their job with a moral eye. I think we bring the moral dimension. Um, and we're all together, whether senator, representative, or somebody typing away in, in, in the office, we're all community builders. We're all building on uh, God's garden, as I said earlier with, with what St. Augustine said. Um, I was uh, deeply inspired by an Anglican theologian from the 19th century, Frederick Denison Morris, who was a founder of the Christian Socialist Movement, uh, which is uh, the progenitor, by the way, of the British Labor Party, um, that he once said that theology is the ground of politics, theology is the ground of economics, and the ground of history, and to begin looking at those, those uh, subjects through those eyes, at least for us as people of faith. And I think we bring that moral dimension. I hope we bring that moral dimension 
to that context. See, there's there's a difference between religion being the ground of politics and theology being right. the ground of politics. How how do you see that difference? I think if we bring if we're, we're using the term religion, there's a danger that we're bringing specific religious traditions into that conversation and into that contextualization. Whereas if we say theology, for me, that would have a broader understanding of we're approaching that through understanding God in faith and looking at subjects of history and economics and politics. But if we bring the word religion in, the danger is we're bringing in institutions with, with various doctrines and dogmas, and I think we have to avoid that. I'll share, when I am invited to lead the prayer at the Senate, I'm, I'm always, I have two emotions that, that mm. sort of battle at the same time when I stand in front of, uh, of the elected representatives um, of uh, everyone in the state. Um, one of those um, emotions is that feeling of the of the prophetic is um, let's go back to our core moral values and let's just remind ourselves of what it is to be a human mm-hmm. being. Let's remind ourselves of the basic fundamentals that we can all agree on. Um, and let's just share those from my particular faith tradition. And the other is, who am I, this little nebbish who's come from England and who has no understanding of, communi- of the nuances of community politics? Um, and, um, and I'm just coming in to say, Jewish, Jewish, and then off I go. And, and it's interesting for me to experience that. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that in the sense of feeling like it has a place, but it doesn't have a place. Or maybe it's outside and coming in and reminding us, almost invading to say, right, what are our core principles? Before everyone gets down to the, to the nitty gritty of this specific law and so on, we have, to, we have to come in from outside to say, you remember we said love your neighbor as mm. yourself? I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Uh, I am a great believer in what happens on that rostrum, and I imagine you're no different than many other faith leaders that come in and stand at that rostrum. Um, Sometimes I think of myself up there in George Washington in 1776 saying, is anybody there? (laughs) Um, But I'm a great believer in that what you do uh, through your own voice, if nothing else, you plant seeds and seeds that those people may not even realize until a later point. I don't think there's any – I don't sense or come to that rostrum with colleagues with any sense of um, impotence, let's say, or um, – Am I, you know, is anybody really listening to me out there? Uh, What is, I think, most critical uh, to the prayers at the Senate and the same as I would imagine on the House side, even though I don't cover the House, is that they're hearing people from different faiths. Mm. They're hearing voices who come to the holy, from the holy and the sacred in different contexts, and that we are all one in that, uh, in sharing our common humanity. And I think another level is seeing the witness of that of that common sharing but are we all one i mean yes we're all human beings but isn't the essence of differing faith leaders coming to to give prayers to show here is a different way to look at the world um you know if we all and that that's for me the essence of interfaith dialogue and it used to be certainly 20 30 years ago interfaith leaders coming together to say, well, we all believe in God in some Mm, sense, or we all believe in sanctity in some sense. And slowly there was that transition to, well, no, we don't. You understand God differently. You understand Mm. the world differently. You understand justice differently Mm -hmm. and goodness uh, differently. Uh, You know, isn't, 
isn't part of this actually the celebration of difference? It's absolutely the celebration of difference and learning that the world we live in is a pluralistic and diverse world and hearing those voices. And I think that's the absolute essence of interfaith dialogue. This is how you hear God. Well, this is how I hear. I um, go back to the Dalai Lama in his Mm -hmm. book, Ethics of a New Millennium, who begins the book by saying that wherever he travels in the world and whatever group he speaks to or engages with, there's that common thread in humanity for a life of health and happiness. And I think from our various traditions uh, and our various beliefs, this is what we're trying to uh, catalyze in the world um, to bring people to um, enjoy health and happiness, which can be translated as a just and right world. As a liberal clergy member, it's obviously easier for you to say that. Mm. There are faith traditions that are not so liberal that say there is one way. There, there is only one way to be with God and, and, and the others are mistaken or wrong deliberately. Um, the, your perspective is, is a relative truth and theirs mm-hmm. is of absolute truth. Do you think, given that there are faith communities that hold such differing understandings of truth do you think interfaith dialogue which you've been involved in for so many years is possible for all faith communities or do we just say you know what let's work with the ones who at least all say you believe that interesting i believe this i'm not saying you're right you're wrong it's just we're different where do we go with those who hold on to a, a value of absolute? You know, that, that's a great question, and that goes to the heart of what we're supposed to be doing as a human community. Obviously, with those groups, um, that absolutely, it's my way or the highway. Um, I always say there's a place at the table if you wish to come in and sit at the table and be a part of the dialogue. What I like to do, and I have many friends that are on um, probably the opposite political and theological sides from me, uh, once we find some common projects outside of ourselves, uh, we begin to work together on a different level. There was an ecumenical conference in 1948 in Switzerland and Lund came out with the Lund statement, work together on those things you can and don't engage with those things you can't. And I Mm. can remember specifically being involved in a house building project in Ciudad Juarez with a very fundamentalist uh, priest. And he started talking theology to me right in the beginning. And I said, you know, listen, you and I are not going to convert each other. But what we're here to do is bang nails to build houses for the poor. And we got off the subject of theology and faith. And we worked together as friends building that house. And we've had a friendship ever since. That's as spiritual and as theological for me. Uh, He's never going to see the world my way, and I'm certainly not going to see the world his way, but we've got some common missions together, so let's work together on those. So then, what is the common mission? I mean, it's interesting because that that changes the shift from interfaith dialogue to interfaith action. Mm. Um, And interfaith action, I think, is extremely important for exactly the reason you're saying. If we just spend our lives sitting in a seminary discussing, is this true, is this not true, while the poor freeze outside, what's the point of us learning this? But doesn't that suggest some interfaith dialogue is just impossible and we should actually move beyond that? I'm a great believer in probably not in our time it'll happen, but maybe in the next time and again, going back to the seed planting, that Mm. maybe you and I are planting seeds with those folks or with folks who will come after them uh, to sit at the table. 
other than that, sure, I, I agree with there are certain people that will just pack up their bags and, and walk away. Cause, um, but again, another quick story is sitting in a board of probation and parole in Northern Ireland several years ago with two ex-prisoners, one from Paisley's uh, Democratic Unionist Party, ultra-fundamentalist, ultra-conservative, and the person sitting next to him was IRA Catholic, had been on the uh, line to go on the, uh, on the hunger strike right with Bobby Sands when mm. it was called off. Mm. And both of them said – and I've been in context over there where I've heard it, same thing, that they look at each other and look at the, at the group and say, we won't give up our political beliefs. We won't give up our religious beliefs, but we will work together to have kids in this town put down the guns and to bring business into this town and to begin a, a new community. When I see former terrorists, revolutionaries, combatants like that saying mm. that, I, th I said anything is possible. And I've been in more of those situations that I've seen those, those moments. And they each go to their own church, say their own prayers, but on Monday morning we'll sit down with kids and talk nonviolence. That's and that's such an, it's such an important story, isn't it? I think for, the, for our last couple of minutes, let me just ask, there's been quite a profound shift in religious circles in general across the world from absolute to relative truth. Mm -hmm. And there are still a number of communities who hold by a, an absolute value of truth and, and no way am I denigrating them. But it's certainly we've seen a shift in, in global community from um, moving away from being told, as you said earlier, you know, the priest not allowing somebody to read the Bible right. to this is my understanding of the Bible. Um, what does that mean for religion in the 21st century as the tendency is to move from absolute truth to relative truth? Is this a good thing for religion and can religion survive it? I think it's not, a, not only a question of whether religion will survive it or not. It's religion must must survive it and it must and that's how it's going to flourish and that's how it's going to grow by listening to each other uh, and not judgmentally and not with that fist on the table that so many individuals are apt to do but to say okay this is how you understand that as a human being within the context of your life I um, I heard one of the most conservative Catholic nuns a few years ago uh, rigidly right-wing uh, be asked a question from the audience, do non-Catholics go to heaven? Hmm. And she surprisingly said, well, if everybody holds to the truth of their faith and are faithful to their faith, yes, they will see the eyes of God. And I thought, wow, if she can say it, um, that's that's a step. And so I think it's always possible. But I think the, the health of religion is interfaith dialogue. There's no question about it. And then interfaith action together. So you said, let me let me really pick up as we round off. You said religion must survive. Why? I think I, I, I should. I think religion will survive because I think religion or organized institutional religion, it's a common it's a common way for people to come together within the context of their own culture, their own psychology, their own faith, and express a witness to God as they understand God. I just think it's always there, and a place I would suggest of community of value and and hope, right. which is often very lacking or difficult to find in today's world. We're living in a very divided society, in a mm. very divided world. Uh, I've been following the Brexit vote mm. in England. <clears throat> it's terrible. It's divided no less probably than this country. I think we folks in religion have to be voices of hope and reconciliation and voices of building. If we're not there, uh, there's going to be an empty gap that um, is going to be destructive. 
That's a wonderful way to uh, round us oh, off. I want to really thank you, um, uh, Father Richard Murphy, the uh, retired rector from St. Bede's Episcopal Church, the acting priest at Church of Holy Faith, and also the uh, Senate uh, state chaplain. Thank you for being here, for sharing your really profound Neil, answers. as always, a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again, In two weeks' time, keep searching.